Oops, they did it again. The Mets bullpen blows another potential Jacob deGrom win, and the bats fail to push the tying run across in loss number three of the Mets season. We break down the tough loss to swallow against the Red Sox after two impressive wins and look ahead to the weekend slate in Hotlanta. We also chat with ex-Mets longtime PR man for almost 40 years and now the author of the book Mr. Met, the great Jay Horowitz. All that and more next on Amazing But True from the New York Post. Queens, New York. Mets take the field. So amazing. Amazing but true. Orange and blue. So amazing. Here's the pitch. New York folks. It's out of here. We got you. Welcome to Amazing But True, our New York Mets podcast from the New York Post. I'm your host, Jake Brown, alongside the voice you just heard, former Mets pitcher, Emmy Award winner, Nelson Figueroa. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Rate us five stars. Write a nice review if you're on Apple. Pretty, pretty please. The former Mets longtime PR director, Jay Horowitz, joins today's show a little bit later, Figgy. But we got to start off, and I'm just going to let it out. So just let me just release my steam because I have trouble the night games because you got to go to sleep right after, and I have trouble sleeping after a game like that. <laughs> the frustrations that pent up in that kind of loss, and I have tweeted out a thread where I will keep track of infuriating Mets losses. They're three and three. Two of these losses have been infuriating. Sunday's loss was a blowout. You knew it was over after, like, the first inning. But – Saturday with the Edwin Diaz game, the home run with two strikes in the ninth inning, two outs, and now last night. My God, this Mets team did it again for Jacob DeGrom. Every time, he he wasn't his normal DeGrominant, but he was good enough to get a W. They pull out the lead in front of him with Jimenez hitting a big RBI triple to give him the lead, and you're thinking, all right, Lugo's coming in. It'll be a Lugo Batantis Diaz maybe. Hopefully we squeeze this out. And he gets the win. But Seth Lugo hangs a curveball right down the middle and it's tied. You say, you know what? It happened again at DeGrom. It's Lugo. Usually he's reliable. He has one bad outing. But then the eighth inning figgy came along. It was the eighth inning that bothered me. Justin Wilson is used for a fourth time in six days. Fine. He's overworked. You get it. They have some limited options. They're missing some arms. But when that game turns 4-3 and Dylan Batantis is ready in the bullpen, how the hell does Luis Rojas leave him in that game to give up two more runs that end up being the difference? How do you do it? Well, that's where a little bit of the inexperience comes in. And I think it's not inexperience in a baseball sense. It's how do I manage this guy without him losing confidence because I didn't let him stay in there. So Justin Wilson is one of those guys, one of those horses that is going to have to be there four out of six games. And he didn't have it. And you could tell he was, you know, missing wide. He was not uh, a lot of sharpness in his breaking ball like normal. You should have somebody ready to piggyback on a guy like that and almost have a pitch count of like 15 pitches max to get out of an inning. He went deep well after 15 pitches and trying to get out of that jam. Yes, I think he was left in there a, a little bit too too long because if you're trying to preserve uh, or try to keep the game as close as it is, you don't want it to get out of control because that's where a guy like Wilson pitching four out of six days and then his pitch count now is up and now he's probably having to sit for the next two days. That That's the ramifications of not just losing one game, but now you lose that pitcher for a few more games. So Batances has been really good. Uh, I would have went to him a little bit sooner to see if he could put out the fire and that's the reason why you have him, right? That's the reason why you have these guys at the back end of the bullpen and they're supposed to be able to pick each other up. But I, I know the idea 
the concept is, hey, let Wilson take his lumps right here, but he'll get himself out of this. Even if it's one pitch too many, it was wound up changing the tide in the game and came back to bite them. In the you butt. don't need him to take his lumps. He's a veteran. He knows what he's doing. Listen, Justin Wilson has been one of the signings that you know a lot of people don't credit Brody with, but he's been good. Everyone looks at the Cano trade being bad and the J.D. Davis trade being the one winner. Justin Wilson, is, outside of the injuries in the first half last year, has been good, but he was left in way too long, 23 pitches. Batances comes in, strikes the only guy out, and you're thinking, damn, what if Batances comes in when it's 4-3? Do the Mets end up winning last night? But then comes the bottom of the ninth, Figgy. Mm, and, you know, Cespedes hits the homer in the eighth. Bottom of the ninth comes along. And, my God, the Mets are majoring and leaving armies on the base pass because that ninth inning had bases loaded, no outs. And listen, Workman was working, and he was struggling to work. He walked the first two batters. So you have Nimmo on base, McNeil walks, you're feeling good. Alonzo singles yet again. So Alonzo's bat has finally awoken. He is really looking like he's seeing the ball very well right now. And you have the bases loaded, Figgy, with no one out. Conforto strikes out, fine, one out. You still got a chance to push two runs across. J.D. Davis, he singles. Now, an incredible play by Devers at third base because that game's tied if it goes to left field. And because he knocked that ball down, it's only one run. Guess what? Still bases loaded, one out. All you need is a fly ball, and who's coming up? Cespedes, and he homered in the last inning. My problem is this. Workman has walked two guys. He clearly has having some command issues. How on a 2-0 pitch are you swinging? But that third pitch was ball three. The fourth one was a strike, yes, but it should have been 3-0, and and if Cespedes has to have on his mind here, if I walk, this game is tied. Why am I swinging at 2-0 pitches with the bases loaded? I mean, if you're a baseball fan, you got to be pulling your hair out. For me, I'm pulling my non-existent hair out, and it goes along with my tweet that the Mets have taken more life out of me than the copious amount of chicken parm that I've ate over my life. you got to take those pitches, Figgy. You can't be swinging, especially when he's looked very behind on curveballs and coming from a two-year drought not playing, you got to be taking pitches there. Well, that's one of the reasons why he was going to see nothing but a heavy diet of, of breaking balls. Um, and and having known that, he hit the home run in the eighth inning. Cespedes is that guy still in the middle of the lineup who still is the guy who you want in that situation. And he's trying, not trying, he's the guy that gets paid to get the job done. At bottom line, that's what it's about. So in a 2-0 pitch, and he's going to take that big swing because all you're looking for, and it's not about putting the ball in play on 2-0. He's trying to hammer the ball on 2-0 so that it's a sacrifice fly or, or game ender. Um, Swings and misses at that big one. It was the fourth pitch, the cutter that sits in the middle of the plate, the cookie that's out there on a tee that he could drive to right field if he's looking to do that. But he wasn't. He went back to trying to swing for the downs and pull the ball rather than hitting a nice hard line drive off the right center field wall. Game is over. That's the kind of thing that you want from a player who in the situation isn't trying to be bigger than the moment. And that's something Cespedes likes to rise to the occasion. And again, he's getting paid to be that guy to be in the middle of the lineup and come up big in that that moment. After that, once he got to the two strikes and Workman uh, was able to use that hammer again 
and it stayed inside and just went straight down. That swing and miss deflated everyone. Everyone in the building was deflated by that because you saw the young kids take pitches, work at bats, work the count, put the ball in play like J.D. Davis did, put the ball in play like Alonzo did. You had McNeil and, and Nimmo walk. So you're playing your part as a team. And then when you get to the middle of that lineup, the, the murderer's row, if you will, with Conforto, J.D. Davis, then you have Cespedes and Cano, that's where they have to get the job done. They did not get the job done. And even Luis Rojas, he tried his best to kind of hold back his frustration on it because what he said was, we have to be better in that situation. And that's the bottom line. As a professional, as a guy who's in the middle of the lineup, you have to do one of two things. You cannot strike out in that situation over swinging. You need to put the ball and play hard. And what you're trying to do is hit a mistake and drive a mistake out over the field. They're not going to give you a cookie middle then after you hit a home run. He's not going to see a fastball there in that in that count. So he should have been sitting on the cutter slash breaking ball. And having the ability to take that breaking ball would have been much better, made it a 3-0 count. And again, you said it, if he walks, they tie the game. He wasn't looking for a walk. He was looking to try and end the game. And Well, that's a that's problem, to me, because there were two walks in that inning already, Figgy, and four out of five of those pitches to him were balls. I'm looking at the pitch track right now. The first two, obviously, balls. The third one was low on a knuckle curve that he fouled off. The fourth one was the one, you're right, he should have hit. That was the only strike. And then the one he struck out swinging was the fourth out of fifth knuckle curve that was also low. So you're right. He was trying to be a hero, potentially. But if you're a big leaguer and you're a veteran, you got to know that the guy's got command issues and you got to take pitches. It's just infuriating to watch. You got to force You got to force his hand, right? So what you do in that situation is, I mean, I push it all the way to a 3-2 count and he's going to have to be perfect with a pitch. That, that's that's my theory. That's my, my thinking in that situation. As a guy who's been in the box and you're trying to analyze, okay, I know what I'm going to see here. I'm not going to see a fastball. Rule out the fastball. And that's one of the problems is Conforto ruled out the fastball, got the sneak attack on the fastball inside and struck out, even though he was away, away, away with everything. You got to remember last night, he threw 30 pitches workmen, 19 were knuckle curveballs, five were cutters. So only six fastballs in the, of the 30, 24 of those pitches were of the off-speed variety, something breaking because he didn't have command of the fastball. And he's only throwing 92 miles an hour. So you kind of have to sit back and sit on the ball being either a breaking ball or a cutter, something with some spin on it. And Cano did a nice job of trying to push that ball right up the middle where he hit two hits to left field earlier in the game. For some reason, the shortstop shading him up the middle right there. He hits that curveball where it normally everybody thought it was going to be a blooper. Shortstop's right there and the game has ended. But Cespedes is at bat is the one that really killed him. So it's always fun to see the guys rise to the occasion when it doesn't really matter in the eighth inning of a game with nobody on. But there you go. Bases loaded. That's the moment you think of as a kid in the backyard. Bases loaded. Two outs chance to, or you know less than two outs chance to win the game you've got to get the job done you've got to put a bat on ball no matter what you can't be taking that extra big swing trying to hit a grand slam when all you need is a fly ball line drive to end the ball game and even a ground ball the and gary was talking about it the infield was playing halfway so if he hits a hard hit grounder it's probably getting by them and it probably wasn't the smartest decision on a slow cesspitus to be halfway and not playing back at double play depth there with one out but if you look at the pitch track i mean almost every knuckle curve that workman through was a ball almost every single one i don't know if it's a yo thing if, if chili or if chili davis or rojas didn't communicate it to him but you got to be looking at pitcher there with the base loaded you got to get on base so that was very very frustrating and the mets drop uh the third game out of four between the red Sox. they'll have game 
game four tonight. Steven Matz, who was magnificent against the Braves in his first start, will take the hill for the Mets. Excited to see Waka again, who was great. And we get to see David Peterson on Sunday, Figgy, in Hotlanta. And hopefully everyone stays away from Magic City and the clubs <laughs> because we know the Marlins apparently were had a group that went out and half of their roster now has COVID and they're screwing things up for many teams indirectly who will be forced into doubleheaders. Nobody cares that the Marlins have to play doubleheaders, but the teams that have to play them or other teams impacted like the Yankees and Phillies and the Orioles, their schedule's all screwed up because the Marlins decided, you know, we're going to go out. I don't, I don't know the exact story, but it seemed like maybe six guys might have went out and cause trouble for everyone indirectly so but on the Peterson front tell me what you saw from him he had the three strikeouts he picked up his first win five and two thirds doing it in Boston having no fans obviously helps him I think because we know that Red Sox crowd is always sold out even when they're bad and you know they're not that great this year their pitching is terrible they got a good lineup but David Peterson you know striking out JD Martinez twice and uh looked pretty good in his debut yeah if you have three strikeouts only on your debut and and two of the three are one of the top hitters in the game that that's always impressive. He looked really good. Um, for me, it wasn't anything flashy. It was just consistent. It was just the poise, the command that he had with all his pitches, his ability to use all his pitches. He didn't have to rely on just two pitch combinations. He was able to use his change up, his slider, sprinkled in the curveball every now and then. That's something that you like to see from a young pitcher where he didn't let the moment get too big. And I don't know if a crowd on the road had a factor or non-factor to do with it because they were only cardboard cutouts. I, I think that's what you're looking for out of this kid is he reminds me and I know fans are going to get nuts because he reminds me of his stuff is almost like Jonathan Neese where it's not overpowering it's 92 miles an hour but he's able to make the ball spin off of different axes so he has that 92 mile an hour fastball able to make the change up go down and away he's able to make the slider go down and in he's able to make the curve go straight up and down so he's able to mix his pitches up very very well and I was very impressed with what I saw from him honestly I mean he was attacking the strike zone he didn't get a couple of calls I think it was Benatendi uh, that uh should have had calls uh struck him out a couple times if you ask me there was a slider that was right there inside of the strike zone he didn't get the call of course because he's a rookie um but i think that's one of the things i look for of course is he didn't waver and went back out there the following inning um so he looked strong i'm excited to see him get a little bit more comfortable see if he can relax even a little bit more and, and continue to just pound the zone and get ahead of these major league hitters and then be able to uh also uh, let his defense work behind him with not having a lot of strikeouts and it seems like he's a fifth starter i mean he pitched well enough that you got to lock him in there until maybe he gets rocked once or twice but remember if you get rocked twice leases are short and on the leash short front the leash could be short if Robinson Cano he's, he's been getting singles and he's been hitting okay but Andres Gimenez showed I know it's only one game I don't want to get ahead of myself but his swing looks very nice he's smooth he's speedy he's good defensively he had that big RBI triple two hits so Andres Gimenez I mean they're not going to be able to find a trade partner for Robinson Cano so Gimenez might not got a chance to start here for a while but if you're a Met fan you got to salivate at the potential thought of the future up the middle of Ahmed Rosario and Andres Gimenez uh backing up guys like David Peterson who could be the future in the rotation as well yeah this is this is a, def a different kind of team we're not used to seeing uh, a lot of young players that uh, have such potential I think you look all around um between the J.D. Davises the McNeils the Alonzo start talking about that now you're talking about a, a mid-20s kind of group where older uh, Mets lineups in the years past, they were stacked with 
superstars who were past their prime, right? And you look at the, you look at their lineup, and it was a bunch of thirty somethings, you know, thirty five and 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 up, it seemed. Where you were like, man, they just don't have anybody coming up. They don't have anybody that can help, you know. And what happens when these guys become free agents? Right now, it's an exciting time because you're getting to see some of these players and some of these uh, guys that you read about and you didn't get to see maybe with your own eyes. Jimenez getting him up here and letting him have an opportunity, I think, to learn at the major league level is good. Something he wouldn't have had if he was, uh, you know, at a triple A season, he would be down there to continue to develop. Uh, Peterson himself as well, getting a chance right now. And then until Stroman comes back, he will be the number five. So I like what I see with the young players that the Mets have. And, and you talk about, it's always been a, centered around that starting rotation. Remember the five aces, which never came to fruition. That was always the focal point. No more is that the focal point. Now it's really about those everyday players who have a chance to do something on a daily basis and finding ways to put them in positions to have success. I think that's the biggest job right now for Luis Rojas moving forward. He's got a young nucleus. Now he just needs to manage right. He needs to manage this bullpen right. And he's got to hope that maybe in, in the next week or two that we see Robert Gazelman back, that we see Brad Brock back in the mix. It does seem like they are on the men and they're coming back soon which will be a big help to middle relief. And listen, Seth Lugo got to have one time out of every, you know, 20 where he gives up a run. And he, he knows exactly. he, he left. You could, you could say, I mean, he left a hanger right down the mm-hmm. middle of the plate. Um, that looked like a folly floater. That was a Nelson Figueroa curveball <laughs> special um, right there. And uh, before we wrap up and hand off to uh, Jay Horwitz for a fun interview, Jose Reyes announced his retirement. And, you know, we saw it coming. He hasn't been in the league since 2018 when he played. You forget that he played 110 games that year with the Mets. He batted 189. So it wasn't the greatest ending. But those memories with Reyes and Wright early on on the left side of the infield and having them able to finish off their career together is pretty magical when you think about it starting and ending your career together same side of the infield so many great memories every time he would leg out a triple was so fun everything about it I mean the off the field stuff was the blip in the radar during his career but you were his teammate talk about him as a teammate and being in the clubhouse with him and I know you guys are still friends today as he is a a rap star on the on the uh, Spanish rap star I, I guess as people have told me in Dominican he's like a, a big star so tell me about him as a teammate and what you'll miss about him. Well, he was kind of the uh, he's the the spark, you know, the, the chispa. That's what they say in Spanish. He's the guy that gets chispa. So he's the guy that, that gets everything going, right? And he comes in with this high energy. And so him and David Wright were kind of yin and yang when it came to that. Reyes was the flamboyant one, you know, with the he had the dreads and dyed his hair and everything else. Wright was that blue collar guy that on the left side of the infield. Those two just were magical together because they could cover so much ground and and they were always instrumental in every single rally because if Reyes got on, you know his speed, he could steal second base. You had right who could hit the ball the other way. There were so many things that you could do with those guys, and you wanted to see those guys in Met uniforms forever. Um, when they had to pick and choose between the two guys because they knew they were going to get $100 million contracts and didn't know if they could afford both, Reyes was basically who that park was built for, City Field, with the huge gaps, the big wall in left field, that kind of thing where if he hits the ball off the wall in left field, you're looking at double, triple, he hits the ball in the gaps. It's double, triple right out the chute. He's that exciting player that you could have seen there. It took Wright.
quite a little while to get used to the bigger dimensions of City Field and Shea Stadium. And they even moved the fences down. The Great Wall of Flushing came down to uh, the orange line that you know hitters were able to hit over in left field. So Reyes, for me, man, he was just uh, he was just so fun to be around. Always the life of the party. Always the guy who you know, hey, everybody could be hanging out and it'd be a hot day, and he'd get up there and put his uniform on, and he'd be the first one out the door to get ready and stretch his legs, and he'd yell at everybody to wake up, and here we go, we, we got a ball game to play, and and that was the guy that you wanted to set the tone. If he had a good game, we had a good game. And it was really figgy that 05 to 08 stretch that stood out where he stole 60, 64, 78, and 56 steals. After that, his career uh, dipped a bit. He had injuries. 09 only played 36 games, um, and just injuries kind of took its toll. And it was, it was interesting, the subtle shot he took at the Rockies by not mentioning them in his goodbye letter. He said, uh, I want to thank the Mets, and uh, he said, I also want to thank the Marlins and Blue Jays. Didn't mention the Rockies and those 47 games that he played there. So that, that tells you about I don't you think he remembered that. Honestly, yeah. I don't think he remembered I think that. Those, I think those games might have slipped his mind a little bit uh, in the Rocky Mountain high. And listen, Jose Reyes was a staple of my childhood. We had David Wright and Mike Piazza on staples of my childhood. Uh, next up, hopefully, it will be Jose Reyes on Amazing But True. But joining us next on Amazing But True is the longtime ex-Mets PR man turned author of the book, Mr. Met. Jay Horowitz joins us next. Joining us now is the former Mets longtime PR man. Was there almost 40 years since 1980? And now he is the current team's VP of alumni relations and club historian. You know him. If you've gotten a credential from him, you've seen his signature on there. It is Jay Horowitz joining Jake Brown, Nelson Figueroa on Amazing But True. Jay, welcome to the show. How are you, man? Thanks for having me, guys. It's my honor. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and we're uh, you know we're happy to talk about your book. You are an author now of Mr. Met, and the second part of it is how a sports mad kid from Jersey became like family to generations of big leaguers. But first off, we got a title, right? Yeah, I was going to say that, that is a tongue twister. <laughs> um, but yeah. the first part of it, I got to ask. Have you cleared this with Mr. Met? I, I, I think his two responses are either a head nod or he gives you the middle finger. Which one was it? Yeah, he gave me, but the only problem is every book I sell, I have to give him his give him a you know a percentage of every book I sell. And now he got married, so I give it to him and his wife. So you know, I'm not making a hell of a lot of money on the book, boys. <laughs> and uh, you know, he's got to use it to buy a new mask that he's he's rocking at these games with the uh, with his cardboard cutout friends there. Tell us what what inspired you to write the book and uh, what's some of the feedback you're getting. It came out a few months ago. Yeah, wrote- a couple of things. Uh, you know, I'm going to be 75 in August. You know, been there a long time, getting to the end of my career, and a lot of you know, I had a lot of funny stories through the years, and people kept saying, "Why don't you put it down and writing?" And when I wrote the book, I didn't want to hurt anybody. I just want to be in my relationship with the guys, Joe Torrey to Gary Carter to David Wright to Nelson Figueroa. And one of the main reasons I wrote the book, I was I never really said anything before. Now, I was born with glaucoma in my right eye. I was born uh, blind in my right eye. I had a red eye, a green eye and a blue eye. As it growing up, I was ridiculed a lot, made fun of when I was about sixth grade. The disease was spreading to the other eye. So I had an, I had an artificial eye put in. So since I was about 13, I had a glass eye. I was always a 
embarrassed to tell people that. And I don't know why. If you think my days of modeling are like over right now. So I said, maybe if I could be an inspiration to anybody who's born with a disability, it doesn't mean your life is over. You persevere. You can make some of, of yourself. And the other reason was, uh, I think Nellie knew, knew Shannon Ford, who worked with me for 22 years. She died of breast cancer at the age of 44 with two young kids. And I just didn't want to let people forget her. So I wanted to have a little chapter in the on her legacy, let people know what Sharon was about, and then we always remember her, and she was really a big part of what I ever did with the Mets. That's about a couple of reasons why I wrote the book, Boys. Well, I feel cheated, Jay, because I've known you all these years, and I had no idea about the glass eye. You hid that secret very well. Well, you know me. what you think is, Nelly, if you looked at me, it was something, and I for some reason, was always embarrassed. Well, I have a glass eye. I was, well, I can't see a little, like, just a little bit. I can see light. Couldn't see light. I had a glass eye. I couldn't see nothing. So, and I said, let me come clean, and not complete, that's the right word, but maybe it could be a little bit of an inspiration some kid growing up was born with this or that and say how am I going to get ahead in this world maybe you read the book and say well this guy did it had a 40 career with the meds I could do it too and that's what I'm hoping part of the things with the book absolutely and I think that's a tremendous thing right there is that you have something to give back and even if you're not a professional athlete you have been surrounded by some of the best in the game and these stories that are in the book I- I'm sure uh, they are the PC uh, the PC version of most of these stories I know with Jay Horowitz, whenever whenever he's around the guys, he becomes one of the guys. And I, I from my very first year of playing uh, with the team, I, I think we went out to Benihana's with uh, John Franco, Butch Husky. My and birthday our, spot. Love Benihana. And so we went out with Jay Horowitz, and uh, I'll never forget, Jay went to the bathroom, and Johnny Franco grabbed his little sushi appetizer and picked up the tuna and put wasabi all underneath it. And so when Jay I remember that, Nelly. <laughs> so Jay comes back in the room and he wants to, you know, everybody's like, hey, man, you took so long. Let's go. Hurry it up. Hurry up. We want to get to our next course. And Franco goes, hurry up and eat the tuna. Or I'm taking it away. So he puts it in his mouth and just stuffs it in his mouth. He's trying to chew it, but it's full of wasabi. His eyes are turning bright red. He's looking for water. Johnny knocks his water over on the floor. <laughs> Benny honest. And he's sitting there just trying to chew this hot wasabi and he couldn't get it all in. But Chusky's sitting there in the corner just, man, that's so wrong, man. That is so well, wrong. But yeah, we had- I could have. I could have written the whole book of the stuff that Johnny Franco did to me through the years. Johnny always said to me, the boys won't screw with you unless they like it. I guess I like me a little bit. Just, well, I'll tell you one quick story. When the old Biltmore Hotel in LA, in LA, in LA Johnny unscrews a horse head from the lobby, goes up to my room, puts the lights off in my room, puts ketchup on my pillow, puts the horse under my bedspread. When I got to my room, I was just going to have a freaking heart attack. I thought I had a dead horse in my bed. But Johnny, Johnny tormented me, tormented me through the years. He put wire on my glasses, um, uh, uh, tar on my binoculars, uh, ice cream sandwiches in my in my suits, dead rats in my work bag. You name it, Johnny Franco did to me. But I loved it all, though, Nelly. Yeah, that's one of the things that Jay Horowitz is always there through good, bad, or indifferent. And, and for a guy coming up, again, from Brooklyn and loving the New York Mets growing up, you're one of those guys behind the scenes that every single player you've come in contact with has a cherished memory with you. Uh, I know another story real quick for me is I get called up and I'm not going to stay at home with my parents. I get the seven and seven. So they're going to put me up in the hotel. Jay writes me down an address. So when he writes me down the address, I just hand it over to the cab driver, right? So the cab driver is driving and I see the city getting smaller and smaller. And I know the hotel is in Midtown Manhattan. So I'm like, I wonder which way he's going. You know, he's maybe going to back where or something. I asked the driver, hey, where are we headed? And he looks at it and he goes, Connecticut. I go, Connecticut. And then I get a chance to call Jay. I said, Jay, what address did you give him? And he goes, I don't know. Hold on, Nelly. Let me check. And he asked the driver. Turns out I was going to Jay's house. He gave him his own address. And I was going to have to sleep I, uh, at 
I didn't have great handwriting in those days, Nelly, but you know what? <laughs> we, we got to place to sleep. That's all I care. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely correct. Jay Horowitz joining us here on Amazing But True. Follow him on Twitter as well, at Jay Horowitz PR. Go get the book. Mr. Met is available, Barnes & Noble, wherever you get books. You could read it electronically, Kindles. Uh, there's new ways to read books every day, it seems like. So uh, I'm excited to read it. I know Figgy is as well, because the stories have to be endless, Jay. And can you give us a sneak peek? I know you just mentioned a few, but a couple of the stories in there. Obviously, so many different relationships, so many different players over the 40 years. Can you give us a few uh, nuggets from the book? Yeah, one of my, I owe a great gratitude to Joe Torrey. He was my first manager. You know, I came with the Mets in 1980, April. It started, well, April 1st, let me back it up. April 1st, eighties, my first day on a job. Uh, we're, we were at home, so I get lost going to, to, to Shea. I, I, I missed my exit on the Grand Central, and I wind up in Brooklyn. So it's been an hour and a half late uh, from my first day on a job. My first road trip, we were in San Francisco. I never really knew what pay TV was, so I left the pay TV thing on all weekend, but I checked out after three days, had almost about $150 worth of bills on my tab, and I had a glass an author, Richard, who's a traveling secretary, an author. I didn't watch those movies. Well, you got to pay for them. So my first bill at a hotel was about $200 in, in incidentals. You know, and how I got the job, I uh, I had accepted a job to be the uh, staff guy for Tony Kubek and, and Joe Caragiola. This is the winter of 1980, and about a couple of days after I accepted the job, I get a call from a guy. I said, I'm Jim DeGurdy from the Mets. We want you to come to St. Petersburg interview for a job with the Mets. I hung up on the guy. I said, it's got to be a joke. And the next day, the guy calls back. I said, what the hell? Let me see what it's about. So I fly down to St. Petersburg. I go to the wrong hotel. I'm supposed to go to the old Edgewater Beach Hotel. I wound up in the Hyatt by Airline Stadium. I rush back. I'm late for the interview. Frank Cash and the GM in the Mets is sitting here at a, this little white tennis short. I'm so nervous. They say, Frank, I'm Jay Horowitz. I'm sorry to late. I'm late. I reach over. It's not going to huge container of Tropicana oranges into his lap. It had pits in it. I wore a pulp in it. So I said, oh, Christ, this is not going well. So he said, I hear you're a big reader. I said, yeah. And Frank said, what do you think of Brosnan? I said, who wrote it, Shakespeare? I said, no, Jim Brosnan, the old Chicago White Sox pitcher. So I'm on, the interview lasted five minutes, guys. So I'm on my way back to the airport. I said to my mom, Mom, there's no way I got this job. And I don't know how I did it. 41 years later, I'm still here. You know, I'm still here. How did things change, Jay, from, you know, the 80s to now? Obviously, the press in New York is crazy. It had to have become harder over the years to be the PR guy for a team that does receive some heavy scrutiny like the Mets. Yeah, the one thing that really changed the most is, is Twitter and the cell phone. When, when I first started, the press, the PR guy wrote all the releases. You make a trade, send the guy down, they go through the PR department. Not, not anymore. Now, agents announced the players have their own Twitter account. You have the cell phones. We have these, these media workshops the last couple of years I was there. We tell the players to be alert, to see who you ride up in an elevator with, see you go to a restaurant with, see who you walk down the street with. And what happened when Michael Phelps a couple of years ago, somebody put something on, on what happened on his cell phone. The players have to be more alert today. There's so much more social media at the All-Star Games in the World Series. They have social media boosts now. I mean, it's really got to, the players have to be more aware. You 
know, jobs are lost, careers are ruined if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time and somebody takes a cell phone picture of you. So it, it's just really more of the media, more it's branched out. I mean, there's more, you know, different kinds of media. They have the, the Instagram, the, what do you what call it? TikTok, whatever TikTok. they call it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, need, I don't TikTok, TikTok boy, to be honest with you. Oh, you so might, you just, might soon. You had a book. You're an author. Next, you're going to be a TikTok yeah, star. Yeah, I guess. I mean, but the people, the, the guys today have to be so much more aware of their surroundings. You know, it, it you know, you just, you, what you put in your locker, even at the stadiums, if you put the wrong thing, you know, a couple, how can I clean this up? A couple of years ago, um, with the players gave out an award to the player of the game. Can I say it was a sex toy? Is that a good way of saying it without yeah, saying yeah. what it was? You could say, you so, could say it. Dildo is not like a, it was a dildo. Yeah. It was, was the a ra- dildo. The rally dildo. That's a very, fa- and, very famous and, moment, by the way, on Mets Twitter. So I really want to hear this story. Yeah. And, and somebody, you know, they didn't realize this particular play didn't realize the dildo was in his locker and it got more PR than what he did to get the player of the game, you know? So <laughs> you just got to be aware of what's going on. Yeah, that was poor TJ Rivera right there. And uh, I remember that moment because I reached out to him and I was like, dude, you're the second most famous Met thing of the night. You did a great job, but look behind you. And they uh, realized that they should have they zoomed in on his, on his face. But Jay, most of the time we... You know, we always tell the players, especially, you know, when we do the media sessions and to be accountable. How difficult is it for the PR guy? Because you're supposed to be the link in between when the media wants to get at somebody and you know the kind of questions that are coming. You try to always prep us, you know, ahead of time. Like, listen. Yeah, I mean, there are three separate uh, entities. You have the ownership who hired you, then you have the media and the players. So the, the players think you're partial to the media, and the media thinks you're, you're partial to the players, and only just thinks you're partial to the other two people. So I just try and tell them to be, you know, to, to be there, good, bad, or different. You know, if, you, if, you're, if you're part of the game, be in front of your locker and, and tell the truth. The reason I was able to exist for so many years, guys, because I, I, I got the players' trust. I never regarded myself as a suit. Uh, when I gave somebody some advice, they knew it's coming from my heart. They knew I wasn't trying to BS them. And, you know, I mean, just to all the guys, guys coming up, I, I remember the first talk I had with, you know, Jacob DeGrom before he, you know, he, he came up a couple of years ago. He's supposed to be a bullpen guy. He never pitched in anything out of the bullpen. He started against the Yankees in the Subway Series, and the rest is history. And I said, Jacob, listen, I don't want to sound like your father, but, you know, the only thing I tell you, there's a lot of people here, when you, when you pitch in a game, you give nine runs, you pitch a no-hitter, be there. And he's always been there. And all the, the BS, is, is kidding, not BS, I mean, all the you know, stuff that he's gone through, of the, all the games he's pitched with no runs, one run, he's never once lost his temper. He's never once hit. He's never once blamed it on lack of support. He's uh, that's why I think the best is the best is yet to come for him. I mean, I think he's uh, you know that's why. Can I just digress for one second? Some people ask me why did he write the forward for my book. And the reason he did was, you know, the the authors wanted to, the, the the book company wanted to get my connection to a, the younger guy. So I asked Jacob if he would. I had kind of a great relationship with him. I mean, I'm about 40 years older than he is. Okay, so for me to get him to do something, we always have a little caveat. Like I say, Jacob, I need you to do this interview. He says, Well, they had a basketball court in the locker room. He would say to me, Well. You can make two or three shots. I'll do the interview for you. I never made two or three shots. Another time he said, well, come out in the field. His phone goes to me and Stephen Mouth. If you do that, we'll do the interview for you. That's the way I kind of try to blend in and be part of the, the fabric and let him know I wasn't, you know, I was 
there for them. And I, I was I wanted to be one of the guys and yet do my job. And that's what I hopefully I was able to strike to strike that balance there for decades. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that was so endearing about you is that you were always kind of one of the guys always seen as a trusted member that we could say anything to you and it's not going to get back to management. Things that are things that you're going to take to the grave. I, I would love to hear. I want to know. I think we already know if we say who's the easiest guy to deal with, that's going to be David Wright. That's a no-brainer. What the toughest yeah, I mean, guy to deal with? Too, now, because I go back a little way, and they, they always said it to me, who is he? You know, David's one of the great guys, but I never really had a guy that I didn't like. I mean, Dave Kingman had a bad reputation when, when we first came here. He lived in my house for two weeks, and you know, like, you know, David Wright, Johnny Franco, Mookie. So you gave him the wrong address, too? So he lived with you for two weeks? <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, we, we lived together because he didn't have a place to live. So I had an extra bedroom. <laughs> and we used to share a car together. We had, we had a couple of stops at White Castle and Main Street in Clifton. And David always paid the tolls, you know, which was good. But I, I, I was blessed to work with so many guys and managers, you know, you know Terry and Joe Torrey, Willie and Bobby V. And that's it. They were like my family. And I can never honestly say I never had really an adversary relationship with anyone. I mean, I know people are going to say that, well, he's blowing smoke. But that's the truth. I always try to treat the 25th guy on a team like the number one guy on a team. You know, the, the players are, you know, Mel, you've been around Milwaukee your whole life. The players know if you sit by our guy all the time. They never, you got to let the people know you're there for everybody. And that's, and that's what I really try to do. And, and there's one thing that really helped me get through four decades is really that. Anybody in the locker room knew they could come to me for anything at any time. But, Jay, I had, I'd have to imagine there were some headaches over the years, over the course of 40 years. I mean, I'm thinking of that 86 team. If they were the way they were in 2020, it would be, I would think, a disaster. Like you talked about with Twitter and everything, some of the stuff that went down, that's a tougher move to try to be the PR guy for that team in today's uh, era. Yeah, I mean, let's put it in a nice way. I mean, the, through the 86 season, you never knew what you'd expect when you got to the ballpark. You had, you know, you had, you know, you know, Daryl and Doc and Lenny and, you know, Keith and and, 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 and Wally and, and, and Davey was, you know, for me, Davey's hiring room in 83 was really like the key to it. Probably the best group of years we had. I mean, Davey was so brash. He never was afraid to say anything. You know what's good about this team, guys? None of the guys ever shied away from anything. You know, they, well, you know, when Doc and Daryl had their troubles off the field, they never shied away. They stood there. You know, when, when Keith had his little stuff, he stood there. When Ray Knight, they, they were all, they, that's why the media loved them because they didn't hide, go run into the trading room. And they, there was no weight room back in those days. They didn't go into the food room. They spoke their mind and, and they, they told it like it was, you know, and, and you know, we I never had to worry about a guy saying no comment. I can't comment on this. I don't want to address this issue. And uh, they, it, it, you know, I was probably closer to that team than anyone because, you know, I started when I was 34. So I was about, you know, 40, 41. We won in 86. I was able to have a great bond with those guys. And we still, you know, I don't know if you guys know, like next year, uh, you know, ESPN is doing a, what they did with the last dance with the Bulls, they're doing a documentary on the 35th anniversary of the 86 team. So they have guys flying around the country to interview all the guys. That should be a pretty interesting uh, show when it comes out in the spring of uh, 2021. Do you miss it? Do you miss being there day in and day I out. I do. Can I be honest with you? I do, and I'll tell you why. When Jeff Wilpart came to me in 2018, it was in August that we wanted to switch jobs. We really haven't done a whole lot with the alumni, and the, and the 50th anniversary of the '69 team was coming up. And I, and I came back to the next day and says, "I don't like the idea, Jeff. To be honest with you." 
I, I, I like to travel. I like to come around in the locker room. The dinner's on the road. The, you know, the, the movie's on the road. Basketball on the road to guys. And I thought about, you know what? I said, I've been doing the same thing for 38 years. Let me try it. And you know what? Two years into it, I'm really happy I did. I've really helped connect the, the guys, bring some guys back to the Mets family who really had drifted away. I'll give you one example. Yeah, um, Ho- Hobie Landriff was the first player to have to buy the Mets in 1961 in the draft. I called him about four or five or six months ago. He said, Hobie, I'm Jay Horowitz, blah, 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 blah. He told me he was the first, he was a, I'm the first player from the organization who called him in 50 years. And I, that's what I try to do, you know, get close to the 69 guys, you know, Cranepool and Cleon and, you know, Jerry Kuzman and guys like Jay Payton. He mentioned Butch Husky and, you know, Doug Flynn and Joel Youngblood. And I work with all of these guys. I'm old enough to work with most of them. So it's good to establish old ties and, and let them know that we, we give a damn. And, and I think the guys feel better about the organization when they get calls. We did a new, we do a newsletter. We do a podcast. And, and before the virus last year, uh, we we brought it to the stadium for appearance. And we're doing a, a, a thing now, Nelly. We're, we're doing alumni Zoom calls to nursing homes and assisted living places like Dow's done one, Turk, with um, Boda, Johnny Franco. So, you know, these people in the in the homes can't get out. We're bringing baseball to them. Now, you know, I think we're doing good in the community. It's, just, it's a different kind of satisfaction now. Yeah, and that's something that I noticed through the years. I've been with many organizations, and I mean, I know the Pirates put out a black and, uh, black and gold newsletter every year. They put out this whole list, and, and you have access to their the other alumni's information because the fraternity, the fraternity of players is a very small fraternity and you always want to have access and I think Jay's been fantastic through the years if I needed to get access to a player Jay would always uh, allow me in he would contact that player see if I could get his information and most players again it's a fraternity they give their information we get to conversation with Jay I hope I don't uh, lose my cell phone if I lose my cell phone I'm in trouble oh my gosh I know I know that's yeah. the one thing that thing you need a black box on that thing so with, with yeah, Jay, I have Ty Cobb's number on my cell phone, Nelly. <laughs> Honus Wagner on speed dial. Yeah. Honest, yeah, I tell people I work with Kay. I went to one appearance about a month, a year ago, and I told people I work with Casey Stangle. The people believe me, so I let them believe me. You know, so I'm old, but I'm not that old. So the beauty, the beauty with Jay and this alumni relations thing is there is not a single player that Jay would contact, and be, they would be like, "No, you, you know, I don't want to hear from you guys." They they don't have that. They don't have that relationship yet with all the alumni with the Mets you know the the 86 guys of course the 69 guys 50th anniversary I get all that but there's a lot of players who've come through the years that fans want to hear about fans want to know what's going on with them you wrote a piece about Anthony Young not too long ago and that AY piece was very touching to me because I got to meet AY and spend time with him at, at fantasy camp where I'm one of the 24 coaches so for me it was been a great way to get access to those guys yeah, I appreciate that Nelly. yeah he was a good guy 51 years old too young to die man much too young to Die. Can I say one quick? I tell one quick AY story. In my younger days, my, my when I was not as mature as I am now, I used to make up these bogus press notes on the last day of the season. So Anthony Young was a was a pretty good football player at the University of Houston. So I put out this release that Anthony Young is going to go right from the Mets season to go play football for the Houston uh, for the Houston football team. You know what's the, what's the, what's the, you know what's the nickname again? The, uh, the Oilers. What, what, yeah. So, yeah. So I was. And so it got picked up in the Houston papers, and the the uh, the Houston the football the GM and the Houston football team got so mad, he called the GM and the Mets called Frank. He says, "Jay, what the hell are you doing? Causing trouble?" Now people think Anthony is going to play football for Houston. 
I don't do that because I matured. I stopped doing that about a year ago. About a year ago. Yeah, you've really matured over time. <laughs> well, Jay, we uh, we really appreciate you joining us on Amazing But True. Go get his book, Mr. Met, How a Sports Mad Kid from Jersey Became Like Family to Generations of Big Leaguers, wherever you get books, Barnes & Noble, online, go order it, and follow Jay on Twitter at Jay underscore Horowitz PRJ. Good luck to you. Let's hope the Mets could uh, get to the playoffs in an extended playoffs. I do, too. Yeah, going so, to run. Yeah. And, uh, You're checking out. Thanks for having me, guys. Be safe out there. Thank you All so right, much. Thanks, Jay. Jay. We appreciate it. Love. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you having me on. And that puts the icing on the cake for episode 14 of Amazing But True, our New York Mets podcast from the New York Post. Thanks to Jake for producing the show. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're using Apple, please rate us five stars and write a nice positive review. For Nelson Figueroa, I'm Jake Brown. We will be back Monday recapping the Mets' first three games this weekend in Atlanta. Have a great weekend, everybody. Stay safe.